Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we have lifted our hearts up in praise to you this morning, and I, I trust that our, our worship to you today is, is a pleasing aroma. Because we know that you take joy when your kids gather together and praise you. We've sung this morning that you have done great things among us. Hear our hearts, Lord, as we, as we recite some of those great things back to you. Take, take a moment and consider the work of God in your life this week. Lord, you have done great things. And we've seen nothing yet compared to your glory to come. Lord, I pray that as we gather here this morning that we would reflect the beauty of your bride. That we would reflect the work that you are doing in your bride to, to, to make her, to create her in your image, to, to create her spotless and blemish-free for that day when we join with you. I pray, Lord Jesus, that everything that we do and say here would reflect the beauty of your bride lives only for your worship. I pray that the word that is, that is preached and taught in this place and among us would be your faithful word. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that it would be living and active as you have promised, sharper than any two-edged sword, to do your mighty work in our lives. Lord, I, I pray for our brothers and sisters in Shakopee this morning. Um, I understand that there are protests going on in, in some of the churches, and we pray, Lord Jesus, that they too would reflect your glory and your beauty. I pray that you would, that you would take the message of the protesters and wash it with your word and let the whole world see your beauty and not the message, a contrary message. Lord, may we all stand ready to give a, a gracious word of truth and love to the world around us. So anoint this time this morning, this time of worship, this time of preaching your word, the time of drawing close to you. Anoint it for your purposes. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I had a message planned for this morning, but Megan took most of my thunder, so... Great job, worship team, and uh, the visit by the centurion, centurion and his bride, that was, that was powerful stuff this morning. So many of you have seen the movie Unplanned. I, I intend to see it, but I've not seen it yet, but I understand that it's a, a powerful story of revelation, a powerful story of transformation regarding the issue of abortion in America. Abby Johnson, the main character uh, of the testimony, apparently is a very successful director of a, a Planned Parenthood clinic. And as, as I understand the story, she was asked one day to assist in an abortion procedure 
And it was in that room and during that procedure that she saw abortion for the horror and the murder that it is. Just the premise of Abby Johnson's story is amazing. Somehow, God was able to break through into her life and reset her worldview, especially regarding the issue of abortion. In the darkness and the violence of the abortion context, Abby was able to see the world from God's perspective, and her life would never be the same. Am am I saying that right for those of you who have seen the movie and heard the story? I don't know her entire story, and I'm not sure what went into that moment for her. I don't know if God had prepared her for that moment in advance, if he'd given her some clues, if he'd worked in her heart to bring her to that conclusion in that moment. I don't know how that all worked together. But I find that it's still amazing that God was able to invade that darkness, and he was able to bring light to Abby Abby Johnson's heart in her mind. God is amazing. Corey Ten Boom said it like this, there is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. You see, we tend to think that God's love can't be found in the, in the, in the dark, in the hopeless places. And yet, he seems to specialize in reaching into our lives in the places that we don't expect and the ways that we just could never foresee. In his gospel, the apostle John says it like this, the light shines in the darkness And the darkness has not overcome it. Now, if we'd been following the events uh, uh, in Jerusalem that day, that Passover holiday some 2,000 years ago, we never would have expected God to show up in the midst of all that either. I'm I'm just amazed. The gospel writers tend to say it very simply. They just say, and there they crucified Jesus. Some speculate that the act of crucifixion was so horrible, was so terrifying, that the gospel writers couldn't bring themselves to go into the details of it. I understand that that even using the word crucifixion was considered a, a cuss word, a swear word. It was so horrible. And that abhorrence, that, that fear, that terror that goes along with crucifixion, that's exactly what the Romans intended to communicate when they crucified criminals. The men who carried out the crucifixions must have been a special breed of cat, to use an expression. To specialize in the work of torture, to specialize in the work of death the way they did, day in and day out must have required some kind of steelness, if that's a word, of heart and character. So the heart of the executioner is the last place that you would expect to see God work. It's the last place that you would expect to find God. And yet the Gospels tell us that that's exactly what happened. Matthew 27, verse 54, tells us that the lead centurion, and and catch this, along with his cohorts, We think it was just the lead centurion, but along with his cohorts found the Lord Jesus Christ. They came to the testimony, truly 
this was the Son of God. Now, as the keeper of the cross, the Roman commander was charged with making sure the crucifixion met its intended purpose. His radical transformation is a a testimony to the power of God in a dark place. His startling surrender also serves to remind us it serves as a capstone to the inability of the darkness to overcome the light. Abby Johnson's story of the abortion industry is just one example of the growing darkness around us. Every day brings another headline of of persecution of believers, of the suppression of truth, of wisdom being thrown out the window. And our our descent into, into darkness as a culture and as a world is evident for anybody who stands watch. The Apostle Paul reminded us years ago that this day would come. He writes in 2 Timothy 3, verses 12 to 13, he says this, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on, listen to this, from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You see, ever since the introduction of sin in Genesis chapter 3, evil and darkness have always been a part of the world. But I submit to you that the increase of it in our day, the acceleration of it, the depth of it, the profound nature of evil in our world today marks the end of the age. And I believe because of the darkness, the light is coming soon. I believe because of the darkness growing darker and darker that Jesus Christ is coming to get his church soon. It is imminent. So we need to know in the midst of this darkness we need to know and be assured that God can break into the darkness. That evil has no power, that evil has no victory, and we need to know that, indeed, the hardest of hearts can be invaded. The hardest of hearts can be overcome with the light of Jesus Christ. We need to know that the light, the power, and the glory of God is here. And so the centurion as we've already gotten a taste of, testifies to that today. So let's look at his story. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 27, if you would. Matthew 27. I'll start at verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. Okay, that's about noon. If you you understand the clock in in Jerusalem, that's about noon to three o'clock in the afternoon. Here's an aside. Apparently three o'clock in the afternoon is when they slaughtered those sacrificial lambs on Passover. And that's when Jesus died. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lamak sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. 
verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and as many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake, and they saw what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Amen. This is the Word of God. So let's, let's start. Let's, let's take the story apart a little bit. I'd, I'd like to start with a very unpleasant subject. If you were reading a book, you could probably skip this chapter, but we're not going to skip it this morning. It's been said that crucifixion is the cruelest form of punishment. It's the cruelest form of death that has ever been conceived by man. But to understand the significance of the centurion's testimony, we have to consider what he did for a living. So let's look at it. The Roman centurion was a, a commander of 60 to 100 soldiers. He arrived at this leadership position by doing exactly what he was told. He was likely a soldier of soldiers. He was likely a, a, a man among men. He followed orders, and he was loyal to his calling. He was loyal to his commanders, and he was committed to his life as a soldier. When the Roman army occupied a country, it was marked by brutality that was meant to create fear and submission from the people. And the centurion would have been an expert at that style of leadership. Verbal abuse, arrogance, physical torment, any other means available to him to invoke fear and respect. That would have been the second nature of the centurion. His role as a commander with the crucifixion detail took his coldness and his brutality to a whole nother level. So the idea, the, the Romans took the idea of crucifixion from the Persians. They had lots of ways to execute their enemies. Lots of different ways. They were very creative. But they needed something that would, that would, that would, that would present fear, that would show terror. They needed something that would be a very, very visible means of agonizing death. And so they chose crucifixion. It had to be a display of terror and fear. Crucifixion was the perfect solution. There were times when they would have had hundreds of crucifixions going on at the same time. There was the time at the defeat of Spartacus in 71 BC. They lined the Apian Way Road with over 6,500 crosses. All to show fear and terror. The bodies would normally remain on the crosses. It was not usually permitted. This is an interesting part of our story. They were not usually permitted to be taken down. The Romans preferred for the bodies to be left on the crosses for the insects and for the birds of prey. And they would not normally be taken down until there was nothing left but bones. They became so masterful at crucifixion that they could calculate how long it would take someone to die. 
they could measure out the level and the intensity of the suffering. They wanted to control the image of death on the cross. So when we see Jesus stumbling down the road on the way to Golgotha under the weight of the cross beam, which weighed anywhere from 75 to 100 pounds, we know that they had beaten him so badly that he couldn't carry that cross beam. And when they found someone to carry the cross beam for him, it wasn't because they had a heart of compassion for him. It was because they were trying to manage the death. They realized that he couldn't do it. And so they wanted to preserve the death scene for the cross. And so they found someone else to carry it for him. When they drove the eight-inch nails into the wrists, this, I don't, I don't think this exactly represents it. It would have been square. This is 10 inches long. When they drove the eight-inch nails into his wrists, they were strategically placed there to hold the weight of his body. They weren't put in the palm of his hand, despite what the artist's rendition is. They were put back here in his wrist because that would hold his body up. That alone would have been sufficient for death. If you were only suspended by this nail in each wrist, you would have died in less than 30 minutes. But that's not what they wanted. They wanted to prolong the process. So they nailed the feet to the cross, one on top of the other, They drove one nail, one spike through the top of a foot, possibly through the heel. And then they laid it over the top of the other foot and drove it into the cross. They would also put a slight bend in the knees. This caused the victim to hang from his hands. He couldn't quite couldn't quite get his legs working. By the way, there would be, there'd be all kinds of cramps and spasms going on in the body. The body was just totally horrified at everything that would be happening. They say when they, say when they put the, the nail in the wrist, they carefully placed it between the bones, but there's a nerve in there, and that nerve would have been strung across the sharp edges of a square nail they say it would have been strung out like a, a string on a violin. And the pain would have been unbearable. And so the victim would hang from their wrists. And if they hung down, they couldn't, they couldn't take on air. They couldn't breathe. And so they would push against the nail that was in their feet and push themselves up and take on air and hold it as long as they possibly could. And they would continue that cycle, pushing up and lowering down, and pushing up and lowering down. They had a choice. They could either suffocate or they could endure excruciating pain. Those were the choices. There's lots of details to the crucifixion that help us to understand exactly what Jesus Christ, our Lord, endured. 
He endured it for our sake. He took my place for it. The reason I chose to take the time to describe that is because I want you to understand the scene of the soldiers. You see, not only did they do the work of beating the victim prior to the cross, but they were the ones who callously, coldly nailed him to the tree. And they called it the tree. And I want you to catch this. They thought nothing of it. You see, beyond the physical, they took great pride and distraction in taunting the victim. So they would sit at the foot of the cross like we see with so many others in the story. They would join in. So you call yourself the king of the Jews. So you think that you're the Messiah. So you think you're the sent one. You think you're the chosen one of God. You came here to save us, but look at you hanging from a tree. I can just see the, the, the soldiers gathered around the cross, and we, we have the image of them uh, casting lots for the clothing of Jesus. That was one of the prizes. If you were the de on the detail of the crucifixion, you got to, you got to, to gamble for the possessions of the victim. That was just part of the program. The other part of the program is that they drank. They drank heavily. So if you were chosen to be the commander, if your detail was the one that went out to do the crucifixion, the commanders, one of the commander's job was to buy lots of wine. And you think about it and you ask yourself, how else would you get through that? And so they drank. So they drank. And they mocked. Hey, how are you doing up there? Hey, what, what you did, what your, your crime, was it worth it? Hey, look at you now. With Jesus, they must have joined in the taunts with all of the Jews. You see, the process was more brutal and demeaning than any of us could ever have imagined. It was so bad that even the hardened soldiers drank themselves they drank during the ceremony. It's not uncommon for wine to be flowing freely. So let's, let's turn the corner a little bit away from that scene. Let's turn the page and get out of that chapter just as fast as we can. Go to a much more cheery topic, the darkness of Satan's power. This is just going from bad to worse, isn't it? Now, we live in Minnesota, and we know what it is to see a storm front coming across the horizon. We know what it is to see, and we stand up here at Valley Free on top of the hill. We can look out to the west, and we can just see those storm fronts coming. And in the summertime, there's, it's a sheer wall sometimes. It's just, all, you're, you're sitting here in the sunshine, and it's nice, and it's beautiful. And just a few miles away, there's this cloud, and it is it's black, and you can see the darkness just rolling across the land. It comes in a matter of minutes. We're used to that here in Minnesota. Those storm clouds can be ominous and they can be intimidating. And we stand out there and we watch and we say, oh my goodness, what's coming? And the, and the gospel tell us, tell us that the darkness overcame the day for three hours. For three hours, the darkness hung over that scene of the crucifixion, all the while 
Jesus was hanging on the cross. I don't get the impression that it was a storm. It might have looked like a storm was coming, but some writers say it was a clear day and it just turned dark. It's like the sun ran away. I wonder if it wasn't like the steel gray darkness of a total eclipse of the sun, if you've ever seen that. When the, when the sun is totally eclipsed, there's this gray, consuming darkness that comes. It's the kind of darkness that makes animals run in fear. It's the, it's the same kind of darkness that makes people fear what might be happening and all the, all the uh, traditions and all, the, all the, the old wives' tales that come with the darkness. All of that is a fear that just encompasses the earth. The midday sun was gone. It had fled and it was a consuming darkness that took its place. Ever since... Ever since Satan tempted Eve and manipulated Adam, Satan has been moving all throughout history. He's been trying to undermine everything that God is doing. When Jesus appeared, Satan was there out in the desert. Satan was there trying to undermine and get Jesus to exchange his glory to follow after him. He was standing behind Peter when Peter tried to dissuade Jesus from the cross. Jesus said that Satan was at work trying to rob people of the word of God that was planted in their hearts. Satan was behind all of that. Satan, Satan had asked Jesus if he could test Peter's faith. Peter's name keeps coming up in this equation. Satan had asked Jesus if he could test Peter's faith, asked to sift you like wheat. He was there when Judas thought it was a good idea to betray Jesus. He was whispering in Peter's ear to deny that he knew the Jesus, knew Jesus Christ. Understatement of the year coming up. Satan and evil are pervasive. Everywhere Satan is seeking to steal, to kill, and destroy the work and the people of God. He is there trying to undermine everything that God is doing. Satan had full display of his authority, his power, and his motives, his intentions that day as Jesus was, was, was tried, was beaten, and was crucified. Satan was, all, it was in all of his glory. He was in the crowd when the people cried for Jesus to be crucified. He prompted them to accept the blood of Jesus as their own responsibility, which gives me, this makes me shudder to think. Let his blood be on us. Pilate's wife trying to warn him to stay away from Jesus and the evil plans. And Satan was in full glory as the religious leaders blasphemed, ridiculed, and convicted the Son of God. Satan was in his glory that day. Satan fueled the fear of the disciples as they ran away from Jesus, as they abandoned him and left him to suffer alone. So the centurion... And the soldiers might have been cold-hearted as they went about their business. Little did they know that the full power of the kingdom of darkness was being poured out on the cross that day, was being poured out on the Messiah that they had put there. You see, darkness ruled the day. The centurion the keeper of the cross 
was merely a role player in a much larger scheme, a much larger battle. Okay, let's look at the victory of the cross. Let's go back to Matthew. Matthew 27 is our, is our landing spot today. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. He chose when he would die. You see, when the, when the centurion stood gazing at the cross, he heard Jesus say this. You heard Jesus say, into your hands I commend my spirit. He saw Jesus make the decision to give up his life. They went around to the other criminals, and, and because they wanted to get the bodies down, the Jewish folks had, had asked, can we get the bodies down off the cross before the Passover comes? And so they had to go along and, and, and break their legs so they could no longer go through the push-up and left, let-down cycle that they were going through. I can't imagine. But when they came to Jesus, he was already dead, and nobody believed it. He had given up his spirit. And so I believe we need to look beyond the darkness. We need to look beyond these circumstances that the centurion saw. We need to see what's really happening in the spiritual realm. And to the amazement of the centurion, this man, Jesus, was in complete control. You see, I don't think it, we don't have to imagine very hard to understand that control is not in the equation for those who suffered the crucifixion. You lost control of your life a long time ago. But Jesus was in control of what he said. He was in control of what he endured. He was in control of how he endured it. And though literally dying of thirst, he, he controlled even when he would take a drink and when he would refuse it. And though consumed in pain, he cared for others around him. And though he was nearing death, he still called out to his heavenly father. You see, the cross did not dictate Jesus Christ. He controlled the cross. He ruled the cross. Matthew 27, 50 agrees with the other gospels that he controlled the moment of his death. Matthew says he, he yielded up his spirit. Nobody controls their own death. I don't know if you've had the, the privilege of sitting alongside someone as they step into eternity, but no one knows when it's coming. We can predict it. We can say, well, there's certain bodily functions that are going on here, and we think. But we don't know. How many of us have seen someone rally at the last minute and go on for another few days? You can't control the moment that you die unless you're Jesus. Only God controls these events. When Jesus breathed his last, I want you to catch this, all of creation responded Look at the text, Matthew 27, verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. You understand the curtain was probably that thick. And it wasn't torn from the bottom up, which maybe could be easy if you could tear a curtain that thick. It was torn from the top down with no help. And the earth shook. There was a great earthquake, and the rocks were split. Rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. All of creation 
responded. We usually read through these verses rather quickly. And we're amazed at the conclusion of the scene, but we don't understand it. What's happening here? There was an earthquake. The curtain was torn in two. The rocks were split in half. And the dead were raised from their graves. So what did that look like? The dead were emerging from the graves and they were entering the city. I, I should have put a picture of the, of the, the Jewish grave, the Gru Jewish cemetery on the Mount of Olives and, and, and how it looks down over the city. And you could imagine, you could imagine, no, you can't imagine people coming out of the graves and walking to the city. But that's what happened. And I wonder, it says that they went into the city and appeared to many. Do you suppose they could talk? I think they could. And I think they were talking about Jesus. I think they were testifying about who this Jesus is. And Jesus had not yet risen from the dead, but they knew exactly who he was. And God had raised him from the dead for the purpose of testifying to the people of the city. What an amazing thing that must have been. You see, Jesus reigns over death. Death cannot hold him. I, I don't know how to describe this scene, so I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to use a quote that goes back to the early church. I think it's by a, 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 an early author by the name of Leo the Great, if I'm not mistaken. This is a rather lengthy quote, but I, I think it just helps us to understand everything that's happening in this scene. Listen to this. Therefore, the insults of empty exaltation were scorned. And the Lord's mercy in restoring the lost and the fallen was not turned from the path of its purpose. For a peerless victim was being offered to God for the world's salvation. And the slaying of Christ, the true lamb, predicted through so many ages, listen to this, was transferring the sons of promise into the liberty of the faith. The New Testament was also being ratified, and I'll add, in that moment, in that day. And in the blood of Christ, the heirs of the eternal kingdom, that's you and me, were being enrolled. The high pontiff was entering the holy of holies, and to intercede with God, the spotless priest was passing in through the veil of his flesh. So evident a transition was being effected from the law to the gospel, from the synagogue to the church, from many sacrifices to the one victim, that when the Lord gave up the ghost, that mystic veil which hung before and shut out the inner part of the temple and its holy recess was by sudden force torn from top to bottom. For the reason that truth was displacing figures and forerunners were needless in the presence of him whom they announced. Listen to this. To this was added a terrible confusion of all the elements. And nature herself withdrew her support from Christ's crucifiers. And all the although the centurion in charge of the crucifixion, in fright at what he had seen, said, truly, this was the Son of God. Yet the wicked hearts of the religious leaders, which were harder than all tombs and rocks, is not reported to have been pierced by any regret. So that it seems the Roman soldiers were then readier to recognize the Son of God than the priests of Israel. 
the Roman centurion, of all people, proclaimed for all of creation, truly, this man was the Son of God. Isn't that an amazing picture? So what do we do with that? What do we do with that? We need to know that God is at work in the darkest of moments. We need to know that darkness cannot prevail. If the keeper of the cross can meet Jesus, anyone can come to Christ. Our day is discouraging. Our day is dark. Persecution is being turned up. Evil is being endorsed and even celebrated. Corruption has been a mark of our government. The family and the marriage are under siege. Abortion has gone beyond birth. Our kids are given choices that will lead to confusion and darkness in their lives. And we could go on. These are indeed dark days. And according to Scripture, they're only the birth pangs of what is to come. And that's the point. That's the point. You see, according to Scripture, according to God's plan, this is what happens. As Paul wrote to Timothy, it will grow and it will grow and it will grow. But God is at work. God is working in history. God is working in governments. God is working in circumstances. God is working in people to bring about his plan, his purpose, and his grace. The centurion shows us that God is at work and God is breaking through. We dare not forget that. And like the centurion, we need to see the ways that God is at work around us. This is another thing that we can take away from this. We need to understand that God is at work around us And we need to see it. We need to have eyes for it. We need to pray as Paul taught us to pray that the eyes of our hearts would be open to see what God is doing, who he is, where he's working, and where we fit in. We need to have eyes to see it. We need to to be, uh, Paul warned in, in Romans chapter one, he warned that those who would run away from God, those who would blaspheme God, those who would deny God, those who would not worship God are those who would not give thanks to God for what he's doing in their midst. We need to be a people who give thanks. We need to be a people who are marked by gratitude, who have eyes to see. I see God. I caught God at doing what he's doing. God is at work in my life. God is at work in your life. God's at work in the world around us. I see it. I praise him for it. And our response needs to be worship. Just like the centurion who fell to his knees and said, truly this man was the son of God. He saw the sovereignty of God. I I think about the the centurion at the cross. What did he see? We know that Matthew tells us he saw the earthquake. He saw all that happened. But I wonder if it goes beyond that. We need to look past the conventional wisdom, the voice of the crowd that that the centurion was was hearing and seeing. We need to look past the voice of the crowd that that draws us in and draws us in, in ways away from God. He saw, yes, the wonders of God. He saw the earthquake. He saw, he saw the darkness that was just encompassing and, and fearful. He saw all of that. But I also believe that he saw the sovereignty of God in all that Jesus was doing. He saw, and we, we, we heard the centurion say earlier, it's like he chose to be there. It's like, it's like there was a plan at work in place. He saw the sovereignty of God, so we need to see the sovereignty of God. 
And he witnessed the resurrection power as the, as the tombs were emptied and, the, and people came out of, dead people came out of the grave. He saw the resurrection power even before Jesus Christ himself was raised from the dead. And he chose testimony. The man who was hardened in his command, hardened in his leadership, hardened in his role, in his job, in, in putting people to death, the man who had a heart of steel, chose to testify. He chose to worship. All because of the way he saw God work around him. And so then I asked myself, what then is our calling and what's our role as followers of Christ in the world? And I'll ask the worship team to come forward. Brothers and sisters, I think we need to consider the testimony of Jesus on that darkest of days, in those darkest of hours. And as we, as we prepare for Easter and as we study these characters from the Easter narrative, I am, I am impressed, I am I'm blown away by the fact that the testimony of Jesus goes beyond his preaching. The way he handled himself in all of this suffering and persecution is a testimony that I believe the centurion saw. The way he suffered and died on the cross was a testimony, even without words. And so, brothers and sisters, I believe we need to watch our testimony. We need to ask ourselves every day, how can I testify to God through my life? But we need to go beyond that. What, what, what's the expression? Uh, uh, share the gospel if you need to, use words. Well, that's baloney. The baloney, the, the baloney. The gospel comes with words. It comes with a life marked by Jesus Christ, and it comes with words. And the, and the, and the, the, the centurion chose his testimony. He chose, he chose to worship Christ, but he also chose to testify Surely this man was the son of God. So what is our calling? He testified with his life. He testified in his proclamation. He, Jesus exercised compassion in his testimony. The centurion must have seen that as well. If you remember, Jesus spoke to the women on the way as he walked. He said, don't worry about me. Worry about yourselves. He gave a word to them on the road. He, he took care of his mother. Even while he was dying on the cross, he had compassion on his mother and the apostle John. He had compassion on the thief, with the thief on the cross as he promised him paradise. The, he, the centurion saw that compassion. He must have seen the assurance of God's will and plan. He must have seen the suffering with endurance that came with Jesus Christ. And we need to set, we need to set ourselves in the midst of God's sovereignty, in, in the midst of knowing that he has a plan, knowing that he has a, he has a purpose and, and a plan for our lives. He's working it out in your life. And we need to rest in that. Just as Jesus ex exhibited on the cross, and brothers and sisters, we need to suffer with endurance. I'll skip that one. Forget that one. When suffering comes our way, we need to endure knowing that Christ has a perfect plan for my life, knowing that Christ will work all things out for the good for those who are called upon his name. We need to suffer with endurance. And finally, here it is. Decision time. The difference of the cross is seen vividly in the testimony of the centurion. They gambled for his clothes, but they also gambled with their future. 
You see, the choice is clear. The choice was clear on that day, the darkness or the light, the way of the evil one or the way of the holy one, an eternity of darkness or an eternity of blessed hope lived in the light and the life of our beloved Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That was the choice of the centurion and his cohorts, and that's the choice that we face today. Lord Jesus, if there's anyone in this room who has not made that decision for you, I pray that your Holy Spirit would, would consume them with the importance of this decision to know you as Savior, to receive your redemption, your forgiveness of sins. Lord Jesus, draw us all to that decision to follow after you and to proclaim as surely as the, as the Roman centurion did, truly this man was the Son of God. May each of us in this room today call upon you as Lord and Savior and give our lives to you. And Lord Jesus, as we do so, as it turns to worship, as we incline our lives and our hearts to you, may the world see our testimony and hear the words of our mouth that proclaim, surely this man, is the Son of God. In the name of Jesus we pray.